Hey, Rocky Peak. Hey, good to see you. Um, it was great. Uh, last weekend, I listened to Drake's message. Fantastic job. Um, but it's so good to be back. It's, uh, I, I tell you, when I miss a week, I just come back, I'm fired up. So then you have to take the brunt of that on Saturday night, right? Because I'm just going to... So we may go for a long time because I've got two weeks worth of material. Uh, now, anyway, uh, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors and just want to welcome you if it's your very first time. So glad to have you here. Uh, we're going to be going into our time of teaching right now. And if it's your first time, uh, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet we use every week. You'll definitely want to take that out because it'll help you follow along. We're going to use it a lot today. So if you guys are ready, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yeah. Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here uh, your people and your place, God. I just pray, Jeremiah 32, over this place, God, that you would give us singleness of heart and singleness of action, that we would fear you always, that we would be your people, that you would be our God, and that you would move us to fear you, that we would never turn away so you could always bless us and do us good. And so, God, as we come today uh, in your name, in your place, under your leadership, we ask you now to speak by your spirit to each of us according to our need and for your glory. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today in a uh, kind of rural area. In fact, it's uh, kind of a primitive area, really. Um, and when they first met each other, it was one of those relationships that truly was love at first sight. And so they, they met, they found love, they got married and they were so excited about their new life together. I mean, they were madly in love. They loved their new home. Um, they were excited about their life. They were excited about their future. And so when this decision came, it took them by surprise. And honestly, there's nothing in their background that had prepared them for this. Deep down, they both knew that what they were doing was wrong. As they would look back in the years to come, they knew that their conscience was saying, this is not the right choice. But the upside seemed so huge. And everything about the decision made so much sense. It was one of those times where they looked at each other, caught each other's eye, and decided to throw caution to the wind and to go for it. Little did they know that neither of their lives and their relationship would ever be the same again. Well, today, we are continuing this series that we've been in now. It's our fifth week. And the name of the series, if you're new, is called Rooted, uh, the Rhythm of Relationship. And uh, what we've seen in this series is that God has an epic vision, not just for our lives, but for all of creation. Uh, and that this vision is not for a select few. It's not for the spiritually elite. It's not just for pastors, priests, and popes. It's for every follower of Jesus. And so in the last few weeks, we've been unpacking this story, going deep to understand this story of shalom. And today, the topic on the table is spiritual warfare and this war that's been going on behind the scenes in every frame of every scene uh, since the very earliest times of our race. Um, 
I like the way they put it in Rooted this week. There in your note sheet, you have a quote from day one of our Rooted study we're doing as a church right now. And it says, the worldview of the Bible is characterized by warfare between God's kingdom and Satan's. This is the backdrop of God's redemptive intent. In Genesis 3, God begins to reveal this to his people. Everything God does is determined, more, most importantly, by his plan to defeat Satan, overthrow his kingdom, and establish God's own effective rule over all creation. The whole Bible, therefore, is working toward this end. And it's just absolutely true. And so today what I want to do as we kick off this study is I want to look at three passages uh, throughout the Bible that help set up this story, that help us understand this war, how it started, critical turning points in the war, and what it takes for us as followers of Jesus if we want to be successful in our own lives in waging this war. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Spiritual Warfare, The Backstory. And what I want to do is, is lay out these three uh, passages. I put them all on your note sheet today just so we can move through them quickly. If you're a new at Rocky Peak, we typically in series uh, kind of open up the word and kind of walk through it together. But in this particular series, uh, because we're jumping around a lot, we're putting all the verses uh, together most of the weeks at least. And so let's jump in. So the first passage there on your note sheet is Genesis chapter 3. We just, they just referred to that in the rooted quote. And I'm sure that many of us are familiar with this story. You may not have recognized it. Maybe you did. But this is the story we started the day with. This is a story of a young couple that meet and fall in love. They live in a very rural area. <laughs> Fairly primitive, actually. But they meet, and it's love at first sight. They get married right away, and they're very excited about their new home. In fact, it's almost like a fairy tale. It's almost like too good to be true. Um, they're excited about their lives, they're excited about their love, and they're excited about their future. And then comes this critical choice, something they had no experience with, but deep down they knew they were making the wrong decision that changed everything. And this decision is described there briefly in chapter 3. My hunch is, is that for many of us, that we are probably familiar with this account, uh, this initial temptation, the serpent, the fruit, the tree. But what I want you to catch, and I think often we miss this, is that it really isn't about the fruit or the tree. The choice could have been about anything. What was really at stake was the question, will this first couple that's been created to be like their creator and have been placed in this incredible world and asked to rule over it for the creator, will they trust in their creator? Will they trust that he is good? Will they trust that he loves them? Will he trust that he is wiser than they are and knows what's best? Or will they rebel against this leadership and buy into the lie that in order to be fulfilled, they have to strike out on their own and find their own path? 
And so the story starts like this. It says, the serpent says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, of course, this is not what God had said. He had said you can eat from any tree except one. And the woman said to the serpent, well, uh, we, actually, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, this one particular tree, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, most of that was true. Um, as far as we know, he didn't mention anything about touching it. We always tend to want to add to what God says, which gets us into trouble. That's kind of where legalism comes from, by the way. Um, but uh, he says, well, you know what? You're not going to die. That's not the truth. That's a lie. The serpent said, well, for God knows that when you eat it, here's what's going to happen. Your eyes are going to be open, and you're going to be like God. You're going to need God anymore. You'll be your own God. You'll be like God. You're going to know good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye and it was desirable for gaining wisdom, and this just made so much sense, what an opportunity. She took some and she ate it, but catch this, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it, so they're there together. And then the eyes of both of them were open and something happens And in a sense, what Satan told them was true. There was a new level of knowledge that they gained. It's just not what they had anticipated. And so they immediately knew something was wrong. And so they realized they were naked. Something was wrong with them. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. And so, of course, this is how this story starts. The story of this great rebellion where you trust in your creator who's in this incredible place, or will you strike out on your own and follow the great enemy uh, in order to get life to the full? And they make that decision, and of course, that leads to death at every level, and we'll talk more about that later. The second passage I want us to look at is in Ephesians 2, and this is from the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is looking at the history of our race and kind of summing up the impact of this decision in Genesis 3. And so he's writing to Christ followers in the churches in the area of Ephesus, in, uh, in, uh, it was uh, kind of modern-day Turkey. And he said, uh, as for you, so he's writing to Christ followers, he says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. He said, before you came to Jesus, you were dead. So what did the enemy, uh, what did God warn the first couple? That if you rebel, you will die. And that death was at many different levels, but one of the most important was a spiritual death. It was a, a death in who we were created to be, kind of no longer like the creator, uh, uh, lost our moral sense of right and wrong to a large degree, um, and we are now kind of lost our connection with, with our source of life, with our creator. So he said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, you know, before you came to Christ, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world. It's just kind of the way the world is, the fallen world. And he said, and you followed, catch this, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And this is what we, don't, we often miss is that when we rebelled against the creator, we chose not to follow the creator. We followed the enemy. And so we became under his leadership, under his spell. 
And so he says he's the ruler of the kingdom of air, and he's the spirit who's now at work among those who are disobedient. So we're the rebel race. In the Greek, it actually says the sons of disobedience. When the sons of disobedience, how he describes our race. And he says, um, so uh, all of us, you know, ourselves included, we lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And so when we rebelled against the creator, that something broke within us and we now have this. You have it, I have it. We've all experienced a magnetic pull to what I call the dark side. And so the race is now pulled and bent in the wrong direction. And he says, uh, so all of us lived among them, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and its thoughts. Notice both a kind of emotional, physical desire level, craving level, but also a thinking level, a darkened perspective. In fact, two chapters later in Ephesians 4, he'll describe the Gentiles as darkened in their understanding. Our race is darkened in our understanding. And he says, so like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were under judgment because of that rebellion. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ. So when we come to Christ, we're not simply forgiven, we're made alive. We were dead, now we're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the life of Christ in us, we're made alive. Um, Even when you were dead in your transgressions, and it's by grace you've been saved. This is all a gift of God, right? So so we were, uh, so we, were we, uh, we, we see how the story starts in the garden, the great rebellion. We see where it leads. We're under the power of the enemy with this magnetic pull to the dark side. We're under judgment. Uh, we're part of the rebel race, the race of disobedience. Now, the third passage is one that you're actually memorizing. In fact, you should have it memorized by now. Uh, Colossians <laughs> chapter 1. Uh, and, and so the third passage is, Paul says, so what happens when a person comes to Christ and we're made alive in Christ? What happens? And he says, um, for he, talking about God, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, or as you're memorizing it, the kingdom of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And so here's what happens. When a, a man or woman comes to Christ, we not only are forgiven, we not only come into God's family adopted, we not only receive uh, the new life of the Holy Spirit and are risen from the dead spiritually with Christ, but we switch sides on this spiritual war that's been going behind the scenes. We are transferred from one kingdom to the other. It's as if God has gone in and done like a Navy SEAL sort of thing and rescued us and we were under a spell And he puts the potion of life in us, and we wake up, and he brings us out, and we're transferred from one kingdom to another. But what that means by definition is the moment you come to Christ, you have a new target on your back. Because the enemy has always hated you, but you were on his side underneath his power. But when you came to Christ, you switch sides in this spiritual war and you are enlisted under the authority of King Jesus. 
You are given the gift of his spirit. He has given you spiritual gifts to make a difference. And we now become a part of his kingdom to advance and take back those who are under the kingdom of darkness. And as a result of that, you have a new target on your life. You have switched sides. And so it's extremely important we understand how this war works, how the enemy works, and how we win. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Spiritual Warfare, the Big Picture. And from these three passages, I want to highlight three big picture principles that set us up for warfare and for winning. And so number one, the first principle goes like this. The first thing that God wants us to understand is that the war is real. This is not mythical. It's not just first century worldview. The war is real. Now, the reality is, even as Christ followers today in this country, we can be somewhat oblivious to this at times because the tactics the enemy takes in our culture are often more in the realm of big picture ideas. We'll talk more about that later. And by denying his existence, than the same than tactics he takes in other cultures. If you go to Uganda, you go to Tanzania, you go to the Caribbean, you go around the world, it's completely different. When people come to Christ there, you don't have to tell them, hey, there's a spiritual war, by the way, the Bible says so. (laughs) They're like, they're fully in. They've lived in a world where the demonic is alive and real. They've lived in a world where people worship the spirits. They've lived in a world of witch doctors. They've seen supernatural. They've lived in fear of the demonic their whole life. And so when they come to Jesus, they get this. We have switched sides. And Jesus has set us free. And so the spiritual battle is very real to them. But for us in this country, being raised in a very scientific, skeptical, modern mindset, where if you can't you know, taste it, touch it, put it in a lab, uh, duplicate it, it doesn't happen. For many of us, even as Christ followers, we are oblivious to this war that's often going on around us. Now, for some of you, this is not the case. Because over the last 30, 40 years, certainly in my lifetime, I've seen a tremendous shift in this. Whereas a culture, I think in reaction to our scientific mindset that is so sterile, there is a hunger for the supernatural that has led our culture to experiment on the dark side. And so we have seen the rise over my lifetime of the occult. We've seen the rise of horoscopes, Ouija boards, New Age philosophy, uh, Eastern religions, channeling, uh, uh, astral projection, uh, uh, supernatural healings from the demonic side, these kinds of things. And we've seen that. And so some of you here have come out of uh, a different culture or you have dabbled or gone deep in this and you've experienced this in your own life. Some of you here may have firsthand experiences with the demonic that are very real and have played a significant role in your life. But whether you come from this side or that side, 
When a man or woman comes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins opening our eyes to the unseen realm. And when we get to the New Testament, it's very clear about this. One of the most famous passages is in Ephesians chapter 6. I know many of you are familiar with it, but let's, let's look at it quickly. It says, be strong in the Lord. Paul is writing his letter. Now remember, Ephesians 2, we just read. This is a fallen world under the prince of the power of the air, where the dead people, where the rebellious people, where the sons of disobedience, where the people of wrath, that's the race. Chapter 4, he says that the Gentiles... Their minds have been darkened. Chapter 6, as he wraps up the letter, he says, so let's kind of summarize this thing. He says, be strong in the Lord, believer, and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God. So he's using an analogy here of a Roman soldier going to battle. He says, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And the Greek, the word is methodias. It's where we get our word methods from. And so his methods, his schemes, his, what I want you to catch is that Satan is scheming. He is strategizing. He's strategizing over our nation. He is strategizing over the world. He has different strategies for different cultures. We'll talk about that more later. And he is strategizing over your life, especially since you came to Christ. And he says, our, so he says that, we, so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle. Uh, it's a strong word, a wrestling in the Greek. A wrestling is not against flesh and blood. You may think your problem is your boss. You may think your problem is your spouse. You may think your problem is the media. He says, but... Behind all of it is something much bigger than you can begin to imagine. And he says, for our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly realms. And his point is, and they are after you. He says, you had better be strong. You had better put on your armor because if not, you're going down. The, the war is real. Number two. Number two is that Satan's goal is to destroy you. Now, we see this in the opening story in Genesis chapter three, the opening account, this very first encounter between uh, this first couple um, it's very clear in the story that he is trying to get them to rebel. He's trying to get them to eat the fruit. Now, why would he do that? Because he knows that what the creator has told them is true. That if they eat the fruit, they will die, and that's going to have ramifications from that point on. And this death is not just going to be them personally. It's going to impact the whole race. And it's going to fan out, and it's going to turn in, as we look in Genesis 4 through 11, it's going to turn into oppression and sexual sin and injustice and murder and bitterness and hatred and envy, and the race is going to be subject to death. And so what we see is from the very beginning, Satan has revealed his desire is to destroy. Uh, and it's interesting because in the New Testament, Jesus actually comments on Genesis 3 twice in John chapter 8. 
And this is what he says. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He knows the religious leaders are fed up to hear with him, and they have decided he has to go. So they're looking for an opportunity to kill him. He knows that. They don't know that he knows that. And so, and this is what he sends to them. Um, Jesus was often, you know, cautious with his words. Um, He's, he's very politically correct. He says, uh, he says, you belong to your father, the devil. Now, remember, he's talking to the pastor's association. Uh, he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about Genesis 3. This is how the story of our race starts. He wants to deceive us, so we rebel. Catch us, he can't take us out directly. He did not have the authority to take us out directly. He had to get us to take ourselves out. And so his desire from the beginning, and here's what I want you to catch. When you see some of the evil in our culture, in throughout, you see the evil in world, in world history. And if you've ever studied world history, it is brutal. Like anyone who has a positive view of the human race has simply not studied history. <laughs> I'm telling you, the history of our world, by and large, there's exceptions. The history of our world is one of oppression and brutality and violence, and hatred, and injustice. And it just goes on and on. And when you see that kind of evil, and you look at human history, and you think of some of the most evil uh, kind of manifestations of evil that you can think of, like if I were to ask you, who is the most evil person in your mind in the history of the world? And I don't know what you would say. I don't know if your mind would go to like a, a, a psychopath killer. Like, like the guy that chased down his victims and then would stalk them and then kill them and then eat them. Oh, maybe it would go to images of uh, Hitler and the gas chambers. Maybe your mind would go to our south and the... The, the brutality against slaves. But whatever your mind goes to as the most evil people in the world, what I want you to catch is that is a pale shadow of the evil one. If you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, if you're not, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna explain this, but let me start out. If you're familiar, <laughs> you think of the Nazgul's. The flying, you know, the, the, the nine kings, the Nazgul's. And you think of how terrifying they are, but they were only a manifestation, a pale shadow of Mordor. And any evil that we see in human history is a pale shadow of the evil one from which it comes. And his goal is to destroy anything that God loves. The hatred is so deep that anything that God loves, this creation, the, our race, to destroy it all, 
is his greatest passion. Number three, Satan's primary weapon is deception. And so we see this uh, in the opening account we read today. Of course, when I say it's his primary weapon, then obviously it's not his only weapon. But when Satan, when we think of spiritual warfare, that we shouldn't think in terms of the super weird or super spiritual or super, you know, kind of paranormal. That, not that that's not real. It's very real. But what I'm saying is that's, that's not his normal method. The primary weapon that Satan uses is deception. And you see this in the opening account, right? He comes to this first couple and he challenges God. He challenges his goodness. He challenges his integrity. And he gives him a lie. And he says, that, no, that, that's not what will happen. He's lying to you. This is what will happen. Life will get better. You will be fulfilled. And what I want you to catch is this is at the core of every temptation. And rooted this week, one of the days you're going to be studying about temptation, but what I want you to catch is that at the heart of every temptation you will ever face, there is a claim that God is not good, that God is not for you, and that if you want to be fulfilled in your life, you need to rebel. And the reality is, is that often that lie is true in some dimension at some point. My guess is that when Adam and Eve ate that, that fruit, it probably tasted awesome. I, I don't have any proof for that, but it looked good. It was attractive. It felt good. My hunch is it tasted good. But the way temptation works is the way bait works with a fish. The first bite is always delicious. It's the hook in the bait that kills you. Hey, you tell me, hey, I'm sleeping with my boyfriend. It's awesome. We're having awesome sex. I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> Are you telling me it's awesome? I believe you. It probably is. But the reason God said don't do it is not because it won't feel awesome. When you tell that lie and you get out of the jam, it's going to feel really great. Dodge the bullet. You see... What God is concerned with is our long-term health and welfare and joy. And so the lie may be sometimes in the short run it works, but there's always a hook in the bait. And it's interesting what Jesus said in John 8, remember that same passage where he's talking to the religious leaders. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. We just looked at that. He's out to kill us. He says, but here's, the, here's his technique. He says, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, here's what I want you to catch. These lies come in both big and small packages. 
And this is very important because as followers of Jesus, or if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we tend to think of temptation on a very personal level. I'm tempted to do this, this is wrong, I'm tempted to do that. And of course, that's, that's very much a lie from Satan, right? I call those small packages, small lies. Satan does his biggest work with big lies. And they're not for individuals, they're for cultures. If you can get a culture to buy into a big lie, then people will buy into small lies a million times faster. So if you can get a whole culture to believe that you are what you own, the lie of materialism, the more you have, the more valuable you are. The more you have, the more important you are. The more you have, the more happy you are. If you can get a whole culture to buy into that, there are a million small lies you can work off to destroy people's life down here below. Are you? A million things that people would never fall for in a million years down here if you just went without the big lie. But you saw the big lie... And now, yeah, you're willing to compromise your integrity to get ahead. You're willing to work a bazillion hours and neglect your family because you think this is the path to happiness. There's a million lies, small lies that are easy for you to believe if you can get a culture to make a, a, believe, a big lie. Uh, let's talk about this. Hey, here's a big lie. Some races are more valuable than other races. If you can get a culture to believe that, incredible evil can be done under the umbrella of that one lie. Injustice, oppression, murder, violence, it all becomes easy once you buy into the big lie. We can see this in Germany during World War II, the big lie that our race is superior. Therefore, we are right to destroy inferior races. It's the big lie of our nation when it came to slavery. And think of the horrendous things that were done by people that would see themselves as righteous people because we bought into the big lie. If you can convince a whole culture that any sex is good sex as long as it's with consenting adults, you can wipe out a whole culture. You see how this works? Satan is not messing around with little lies. The way he controls the world is through big lies. And it's under the covering of big lies that we become vulnerable in our life to the small lies. But the biggest lie of all is always the first lie. And the first lie was the lie about who God is and who we are and how our relationship works. Did God really say? Is God really good? That is not the truth. Men and women, the core battle of our lives as followers of Jesus is do we believe that God is good? It is the core battle of our life and it's the core temptation of the enemy. How could God be good when he allowed this to happen in your life? 
It is the core battleground. And when we lose that battle, it leads to giving in to temptation. And then he switches tactics and he says, now that you've rebelled against the creator, let me tell you some more lies about the creator. And next he will switch. Not only does he's not good, but he is righteous and he will never forgive you. And he will never love you. And you have gone too far. And you don't have any value. And your life will never amount to anything because of what you have done or where you have come from. And so he starts with the big lies. And we give in. We give in to the small lies in our life. And then he turns the table on us. And he cuts us off from God for good. And the truth is that this God who created us has always come after us. And when we rebelled as a race, he announced on day one a plan to rescue our race, that one would come from the seed of the woman. And he has been with us ever since. And Paul says, while you were dead in your sins, while you were in your transgressions, you were like everyone else. God came after you and he made you alive. And he has a vision for your life. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've come from. That he loves you. He has adopted you. He's forgiven you. He's given you his spirit. He wants his gifts for your life. His plans for your life. He's planned it before time began. And God wants to use you to reveal his true nature to a world that's in darkness of who he really is. Amen. 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 But here's what happens in our lives is that when in our lives we buy into the enemy's lies, that the enemy builds in our life or in a culture what the Apostle Paul calls a stronghold. Now let's talk about strongholds for just a second. What is a stronghold? A stronghold is just another name for a fort. It's a fortress. It's a castle. That, uh, you know, in the Roman Empire, Rome would conquer an area and they'd put a fortress there to defend that area, to control the area around and from from which they could send out raiding parties or whatever to go out and to take more ground. So a stronghold is simply a fortress. And what the Apostle Paul says is remember that if, if Satan's primary weapon is deception, how does the attack come in our life then? Well, the attack comes in our life by Satan bringing deception into our lives, either on a, a global scale, a cultural scale, or an individual scale, and from there, he controls us. And so if Satan's primary weapon is deception, God's primary weapon is truth. In fact, later on in John chapter 8, you look down a little further on your page below the 2 Corinthians, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, he's talking to some new believers, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Free, Free right? Free. So if the enemy's, if the enemy's web, primary weapon is deception, God's primary weapon is truth. 
And Christ has come to set us free. So here's how it works. The enemy comes into a culture. He comes into our lives and he builds strongholds. Strongholds of deception. And for us to get free in our life and to live the life we were created to live, we have to tear down these strongholds. Now, Paul is using imagery from the Roman army, just like he did with uh, putting on your armor. And so the Roman, army, uh, the Roman army were masters of this. They had huge siege engines that they could surround a city and send these siege in- engines up and tear down the fortress. You couldn't take the population without tearing down the, 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 uh, the stronghold. And so in 2 Corinthians 10, and this is a passage we'll be looking at and rooted this week, or you may be already looking at it, but 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, he says, the weapons that we fight with, and he's talking about we meaning he and his team, his leadership team, it would apply to us as followers of Jesus too, but he's talking primarily about, he's talking about his ministry as an apostle, his team, and he says, the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power, supernatural power, to demolish strongholds. Okay, so what are these weapons? He says, well, we demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So Paul says, as we are going out into the Roman Empire... And there are strongholds. There are strongholds of emperor worship. There are strongholds of Zeus and Jupiter and Mars and the gods. There are strongholds of evil and oppression. And there's all these strongholds. He says, we go and we share the truth. And what we're doing is we're tearing down strongholds. And he says that our weapon that we have, the weapons we have, they're divinely powerful to tear down the deception. So how do we break free in our life and move into the future that, we, that God has for us? How do we go from rebel race, not simply to be forgiven and filled with the Spirit, but breaking down the enemy's hold on our lives? Some of us here, <coughs> today we have strongholds in our life. We have strongholds of anger. We have strongholds of pornography. We have strongholds of uh, sexual immorality. We have strongholds of deception or lies. We have strongholds of bitterness and lack of forgiveness. Right in this room, we have strongholds. And Jesus has come to kick down the walls. He has come to tear it down. He doesn't want you controlled by your anger anymore. He doesn't want you controlled by your addiction anymore. He doesn't want you controlled by your immorality anymore. He doesn't want you controlled by your materialism anymore. He has come to set you free. He wants to tear down strongholds. It's why he has come. In 1 John it says, This is why the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And so the question is, how do we participate with Jesus in tearing down strongholds? 
And there on your note sheet, you have a section called Spiritual Warfare, Demolishing Strongholds. And I want to walk you through a four-step process, very simple, but very profound, of how we destroy strongholds in our life. Now this week, for those of you who are in rooted studies, you'll be studying this more in your small groups, and that'd be awesome. You have a chance to kind of practice it. If you're not in a rooted study, that's okay. These principles are still going to work for you. You're just going to need some trusted believers around you that you can walk through this same process. So let's talk about the four steps. The first step, step number one, is to identify it. That before you can tear down a stronghold, you have to recognize that it is a stronghold. And this is not as easy as it sounds. Because sometimes we're so used to our strongholds, we just think of them as normal life. Um, Now, Paul gives a really interesting example of how this works in Ephesians chapter 4. If you look right above there in the previous section, I believe it is, right? There's a verse in there, Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. And he gives an example of how this works in the area of anger. And so he's, he's giving a bunch of instructions about how to follow Jesus. In the midst of this in chapter 4, he says, in your anger, do not sin. There's being angry, it's really tempting to do something wrong. He says, in your anger, do not sin. He says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a what? Now, this is really interesting because he's he's writing to believers, but he says, as believers, it's possible to give the devil a foothold in your life. Now, what's he talking about? Well, in the Greek, the word for foothold is literally the word place. We give him place. We, We create space for the devil in our life. We create, we invite him to the table. We get him a seat at the table. And so, so here's what happens. He says, when you're angry, you have to be very cautious that you don't act in a way that leads to sin, sinful. And he says, so you need to get rid of your anger. You need to let it go. You need to move towards people in appropriate ways to get it resolved. You need to forgive whatever's right. But you, he says, anger is very dangerous. So you need to get rid of that. Don't let it go on. He says, if you don't get rid of your anger, you create space for Satan in your life. from which he can launch attacks. Now, this is interesting because this is not just true of anger. This is true of any sin. This is why Paul says in chapter 6, put on the armor of God. Because it's not just anger, it's other things. That when we buy into the enemy's lie, and we rebel against our creator, and we continue to do that over time, we give up ground to the enemy. We create a place from which he can launch attacks in our life. It's like we used to be free in this area, but now we've given up that freedom through our rebellion. And we've backed off, and now the enemy has that space in our life. And he has a place from which to attack and take other more ground in our life. 
and we begin to lose our freedom. We begin to lose the freedom we were created for. We are created to love. We are created for joy. But the more ground we give, and we keep giving this to sin, we create a space and we lose our freedom. It becomes a stronghold. And so the first step is to identify it. Hey, that's a stronghold. Now, as you go through your rooted study this week, they're going to have a sort of an inventory to help you think this through. And it's going to be very important that you're extremely honest. Because sometimes we don't want to admit there's a stronghold because we want to hold on to the sin. So, for example, let's take this example of anger. It's possible to say, I don't really have a stronghold of anger. Everyone gets angry. I'm no worse than anyone else. It's really not me. It's my boss. (laughs) And it's my wife and it's my kids. If I didn't have a job, I wasn't married and have kids, I'd be peaceful. So it's really not me. It's really not me. It's really you. Uh, it's, it's easy to, to minimize it. It's no worse than anyone else. It's easy to rationalize it. It's just the way I'm in. I'm Irish. I'm Italian. You know? It's just the way I am. And what has the enemy done? The enemy has sold you a lie. And the lie is, is that That anger is part of you. It's really not a problem. It's not hurting you in any way. And you bought the lie. But talk to your wife. Talk to your employees. Talk to your coworkers. Talk to those around you. And they're going to tell a different story. It is hurting you big time. And you're hurting others big time. And so the first, the first step is to identify. Sometimes we're just so oblivious. Like for some of you, let me give you some examples. Some of you may have been like abused as a child or molested or raped. or You've gone through some really traumatic thing. And that was no fault of your own. But the enemy has been telling you a lie for years. He's been telling you it's your fault. He's been telling you that you're impure because of what happened to you. He's telling you that you'll never be normal again. And it wasn't anything that you did. It wasn't your fault, but you have heard his lies for so long. You believed it's true. And so you're in, there's a stronghold in your life based on the enemy's deception that controls your life. So the first step is to be Radically honest and, and to just say, God, is there an area of my life that's a stronghold? And if so, to, to call it by its true name. Number two, the second step is to confess it. Now, we often misunderstand confession. Um, in Christian circles, one of the first things you often learn as a new believer is that when you sin, you need to confess it. And so it's easy for it to become kind of like this ritualistic thing we do. You know, we're afraid to go to sleep at night. Oh, is there something I didn't do? I something I didn't confess, and my relationship with God's going to be blocked. And this really has nothing to do with that. Confession is just about being honest and bringing your life into the light. That's all confession is. It's interesting in the Greek, even the word homo legato means to say the same thing as. God says, this is what it is. And you say, yes, it is. Confession is just about being honest and and stop to defending or pretending. 
and just kind of bring out in the light and saying yes and taking responsibility. So it's being honest and taking responsibility. Yes, I do have an anger problem and yes, I am responsible or whatever the sin is. And so that's an important step, right? We bring in the light. The third step is to renounce it. And to renounce it means to turn from it, to say, God, I don't, want to, I don't want this anymore. This is what I once did, but I want to renounce it. And there's actually power when we do this in our words. I, I remember I was thinking today that I was in a, a prayer session one time with uh, someone that was experiencing a lot of demonic in their life. And so we were exploring with this, this one young woman about what this was about and how it had happened. And she talked about when she was like in high school or something like that, that she had prayed a prayer, I think it was to Satan or something like that, and kind of asking him to fill her or whatever it was. And at that moment that she prayed that, she had this powerful vision where the whole, whole kind of land walked away and was like open up into hell and there was this fire and this whole, whole crazy thing happened to her, right? And one of the things I remember thinking as I went through that experience is the power of words in the unseen realm. Jesus said, by your words you'll be acquitted, by your words you'll be condemned. Heaven and hell pay attention to our words. And there are power, and you see that, for example, in Romans 10 on the positive side, where Paul says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you believe the story, you'll be saved. So if you come under his allegiance, I, for me, my confession is from this point on, Jesus is my Lord. He says, that sets something, unleashes something in the spiritual realm. Your words have power. And so there's a power in saying, I not only confess this is wrong, but I, Lord, I renounce this in my life. And then the fourth step is to embrace the truth. And so if Satan's lie is the weapon, the truth is what we combat it with. And this is what the lie that you're not worthy, the lie that God will not forgive you, the, whatever the lie is, that we need to replace the lie with the truth. And that's why it's so important, the word and meditation and memorizing scripture. It's like, what is the lie that this stronghold has been built on? And what is the truth that I need to replace that lie with. And this week in, uh, in Rooted, they'll walk you through that concept of replacing lies with truth. So I'm very excited about this because this week is going to be a very important week in the life of our church. For those of you who are in Rooted groups, and like I said, if you're not, you can kind of create your own group and do this, but for those of us in Rooted groups, we're going to have a chance to do an inventory of our life and say, are there any areas where we're bound up where God wants to free us? Are these strongholds? And then not just to identify it, you're going to have a chance to come to your group. And I just want to encourage you to be radically honest and just be listening and following what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life because he wants to bring you freedom. And so this week as you go, you know, if you have a mixed group like men and women, we're going to separate for that part of the meeting. We'll separate out for men and women and we're each going to have a chance just to share as we've gone through the inventory. If we think there is an area, and we have a chance, it's a beautiful prayer. We're going to pray a chance that's a, it's a simple tool that Rooted gives you, that you're actually able to pray this prayer, and kind of it's it's a beautiful prayer where we just do these. We identify, and we confess, and we renounce, and we embrace truth. And every one of us in the group is going to have that chance to do it.
And can I tell you, when I went through this with our pilot group in the fall, it was powerful on both the men's and women's side. Because there is power when we recognize that in Christ there is freedom. And if we have given the enemy kind of a, a authority in our life by our rebellion or believing a lie, that God wants us to take that back. And in Christ we have that authority. That we are no longer under the power of the evil one. That Christ has come to set us free. And so it's going to be a very powerful week in the life of our church. And here's what I want to just put highlight, put neon lights around. I want you to be on high alert this week. Because can I tell you something? The enemy does not want you to do your study. He does not want you to memorize your verse. He does not want you to do the inventory. He wants you to run out of time before you get to day five. And then he wants you to come and have an area, but hold it to yourself out of fear. And so don't be surprised this week if it's harder than normal to get your time with God. Harder than normal to memorize your verse. Don't be surprised if things start coming up to keep you from going to your group. Recognize what's going on. Fight through that because there's a reason the enemy doesn't want you going. And that's because he wants to hold on to that foothold and that stronghold so that from there he can continue to control that area of your life and continue to launch out raiding parties on other areas of your life. So it's going to be a very important week. And so we need to be on high alert. We need to be prayed up. And we need to be listening and following like we never have before. Amen? Now, here's what we're going to do right now. We're going to be going into a time of communion right now. And normally we think of communion, we think of Christ dying for us, his body for us, his blood for us, so we can be forgiven. And of course, that's absolutely true. But the, part, the dimension that we often miss is that it was this victory on the cross that stripped the enemy of his rights over us as a race. And set us free spiritually. There's a passage that I didn't put on your note sheet. We're going to put on the screens right now. Colossians 2. Look what Paul says. When you were dead in your sins. Remember we read about that earlier? When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive. He forgave all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. We were in debt, which stood against us, and he condemned it. He's taken it away. He nailed it to the cross. And when that happened, he disarmed the powers and authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Through the cross of Christ, Satan does not have authority over you. You can give him authority by your sin and rebellion or choosing to obey a lie, but he doesn't have that right. And so today, as we come and receive communion, what a perfect time for us to come before our king, surrender to him, ask for his blessing this week to be speaking to us, anything in our life he wants to free us of. And so if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. And all around the room, we've got tables of, with the elements there. 
If you're here today, you're not yet a follower of Christ, I'd encourage you. This is really for Christ's followers. I'd encourage you not to participate, but just to get up, maybe find a quiet place around the room as we worship and talk with God or process what we've been talking about. If you're here today and you have, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you want in, you say, I no longer want to be on the losing team. <laughs> I, I want to switch sides. I need to be forgiven. I want the Holy Spirit. I want the power for a new life. I want to become part of this epic story. I want to discover the purpose for which I was created. I want to break free of the enemy's power. I want to come alive. There is no better way than for you to come to the communion tables. And as you take it, say, Jesus, you are now my Lord. And you declare that. And in the unseen realm, the darkness will tremble and shake because of the victory that was won on the cross. Amen? Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come in your name. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your life and death and resurrection that broke the bondage that we were under as a race. Thank you that through the cross we can be raised from the dead spiritually, forgiven, gifted, adopted, filled, and sent out as part of your kingdom to bring others out of darkness into light. We pray now, God, as we come before you, as we confess our sins, as we ask for forgiveness, as we bow the knee and receive your love, we pray you meet us in a powerful way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, we have a great week ahead of us, a week of battle, a week of resistance, and a week of victory. Amen? One of my prayers for our church over this whole route is, God, will you protect us from the enemy, but will you not protect us too much because we have to learn how to fight. And you have not called us to huddle away, protected. You have called us to charge the gates of hell. Amen. And so in order to do that, we have to take baby steps and we have to learn how to fight. We have to learn how to take our stand. We have to learn how to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Amen. And this is gonna be a key week for us as a church. As we fight through resistance, as we resist the enemy's attack, discouragement, disunity, fear, we resist that. We hold on to the truth, which is our weapon. The truth is God loves us. The truth is if God is for us, who can be against us? The truth is Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is at the right hand of God, praying and interceding for us. The truth is the Holy Spirit has come to be in us and to dwell in us and to free us. And the truth is if we will listen, he will teach us how to follow. Amen. And so may this be a week. You listen and you follow and you find freedom. Amen? Amen. Now, one more thing. We, after we finish this week's study, we are at the halfway point of rooting. So the first half deals with our vertical relationship with God. Who is God? Who are we? What's gone wrong? 
How do we get reconciled? How are we restored to God? How do we learn to hear God's voice? How do we get freedom in our life? How do we deal with pain and hard times? It's a vertical relationship. The second half is horizontal relationship. How we join with Jesus in his movement to go out as part of his kingdom to bring shalom to all creation. So the first half gets us free. The second half, we begin to go on mission. And so it's a very important week next weekend. As we get freedom this week, I want to cast vision for next week. Because next week, we begin to say, how do I find my place in the story? Amen. And it's going to be a powerful time. So until then, may the Lord be with you. May he heal you. May he restore you. May he give you great courage. May he let you know that you're deeply loved. May you tap into his strength and his power and his grace like you never have before. And more than anything else, may this be a week you listen and follow into freedom. Amen? Amen. God bless.